a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with the incredible Carolyn Creswell from Carmen's Fine Foods. Nothing is more exciting than me. This sounds so bad than being in a supermarket and seeing someone put a Carmen's product in their trolley or, or have them walk past me with a Carmen's trolley. And I chase them around the supermarket and I introduce myself. That to me is the real pride in what I do. Carolyn Creswell is one of Australia's best business success stories. Carolyn grew up in Melbourne, but her family moved to the US when she was just seven years old. As the only Australian in her school, Carolyn felt very much like a fish out of water. The family ended up staying in LA for four years before moving back to Melbourne. And when they returned, Carolyn was enrolled in an all-girls school, where she had to learn how to fit in all over again. This would become a common theme throughout Carolyn's career. She got good at being uncomfortable because she knew from an early age that getting out of her comfort zone would force her to grow. My parents paid for this, you know, private school education, but they didn't give me any any pocket money. And so a big part of, of my life when I sort of turned 15 was desperately going out and getting um, part-time jobs. So I babysat and I, the day that I could go and sit the exam to become a Coles checkout chick, I did. And I worked at the video store and I waitressed and I worked, you know, for the St Kilda Football Club, eventually being, you know, waitressing there. Huh. And I think, you know, that sense of being exposed to a lot of different industries. And I, you know, I bought um, Carmen's when I was 18 and um, it's it's interesting to think of all the different things I've done by then and what the impact of having exposure to lots of industries does in, in your decision making and also of lots of managers. When you, you had all these jobs as a kid, did you did you always plan to start your own business or, or was that all you what did you want to be when you were when you were 15 16 was it a no and I think what's interesting and I look at with my I've got four kids and I look at them now it's are you trying to keep up with the Joneses are you making decisions to impress other people or is this because this is what you really want and you know I was an impressionable young girl and the smart girls around me went and did law and I was desperate to try and get into law because you know that's what I said, Leanne. Yeah, that's that's what the you know, the smart girls were doing, and so I didn't get enough marks to get into law. So that's when that's when I um, went out to Monash and, and started my arts degree. We're in the mid nineties now, and I think like most students, you, I think I, I think I had about thirteen contact hours a week back then. Yeah. So everybody sort of had a, a job or two, and and your job, I think you just I'm not sure if you started when you were at school or had just started at university, and and a and a neighbour that you you babysat for had a muesli business. Uh, can you just tell us how you, how you came across them and, and, and what was the business like when you, when you started working there? So the people that I babysat for, I babysat them for a long time, um, every Saturday night. They had bought a, a little muesli business, tiny little business. And 
they said, would I be interested in coming and working in the business on a Tuesday? And I was like, well, that's no problem. I've got no uni on a Tuesday. So that's what I did every, every Tuesday. And then they hired another lady to come and work with me. So they would sort of have cappuccinos in the coffee in the cafe outside and, and we would be the ones in this little in-store bakery making the muesli. And so after about six months, they said to us, look, um, we want to do the honourable thing and let you know that we've decided to sell this little business and whoever buys it might want you to stay working here or whoever buys it might want to um, make the make the product themselves. So potentially you're about to lose your job. And this lady and I, her name was Manya, we decided that we, we had a little meeting and we decided that, hang on, why couldn't we buy this business together? So we asked to look at the books and um, we decided to make um, an offer of a thousand dollars each and they laughed at us and said they wanted ten thousand dollars and you know we were like well that you know that's all that um we could afford at the time and you know uh, literally it was my savings from when i worked at coles so eventually you know they tried to find someone to to pay more and um they, they couldn't find anyone else so eventually they said, all right, then we'll take your offer. So that's how Carmen's was born. So the car is the first three letters of my name, Carolyn, and the man is the first three letters of my par- partner's name, Manya. So we literally combined our names and, um, and you know, started our little business together. You paid a couple of grand for this business. Um, what were you buying? Were there assets? Were there customers? We basically bought the whole kind of concept. And I, and I do think it's really important that people understood there is something in the fact that we knew that every Tuesday we went to this location and that we made all of the um, the muesli, that we rang 80 phone numbers and we asked, did anyone need any orders? And we knew that, you know, we packed it off and we drove it around in the boot of our car to these people and they would pay us and, and the pricing had already been set. So basically it was just a, a list of customers and a concept of, of a business. You know, it wasn't like there was any, you know, there was even a name or really goodwill. But there is something in the fact that that was already going, you know, and I think when I I mentor yeah. lots of young people in their businesses, in starting small businesses now, the starting is often the hardest bit. The starting to say, okay, well, I'm going to go and make this and I'm going to take a stall at the farmer's market and I'm going to try and sell it. That's often really hard. And, you know, I, I do look back and appreciate that I did buy something that that had done that first little leap of faith. And so we sort of just, we knew what we were doing each week and we were always just trying to improve how we did it or get a few more customers yeah. or, um, you know, that, that constant you know, self-improvement. People listening now think, oh, this, this sounds perfectly normal, but this is 20 plus years ago. This is well before being an entrepreneur was or a founder was cool. This is when no one really founded, business, founded businesses. Uh, so I think if you're an 18-year-old now, you wouldn't think twice, but back then it was almost unheard of. What what even gave you the idea or the the gumption so much to think we can buy this business and run it? I guess you know, and I and I do remember going home and waiting quite nervously to speak to my parents, and they said, "Yeah, that's a good idea. Go for it." Like, you know, I had <laughs> been brought up, and the one you know big trait that I look for people when I interview and that I, I encourage, you know, in my children is confidence. So, knowing what things that you do that you can be good at. And I certainly, you know, when I look at my schooling, that was one thing my school did was, well, why, why can't you do that? You, of course, you could go off and do that. So, you people have that sense of why not? And so, for me, 
I remember being so proud of thinking that I was going to buy this little business. I thought I was like, you know, strutting down the street like Donald Trump, that here I was a business owner at 18. Because it was something, yeah, I was very proud of buying it. And little did I know that it was going to be Mm. such a hard slog for sort of certainly for the next five years, I think. But, yeah, I think that confidence, and that's probably what I look back of anything of, how do you recognise an opportunity or how do you put your hand up and how do you have the, the, the self-belief to say, I can give this a go or, you know, what's the worst that'll happen if this fails? And I guess for me, I was like, well, what's the worst that'll happen? I'll lose my $1,000. But I sort of knew the business enough and, right. and, and believed in it. But I think that, you know, a lot of the time people don't see opportunities or they don't even think that they could put their hand up to give it a go. And that's what I, I do encourage people to to sort of recognise them when they cross their path. It's hard to imagine Carmen's as a startup, given it's become one of Australia's most beloved consumer brands. But back when Carolyn first took over the business as a teenager, it was about as small as any business could possibly be. They didn't have a bank account or even a business name, and it was a great week if they could make a couple hundred dollars through the till. The business at the time sold to about 80 cafes and stores, and Carolyn would have to call them once a week to see if they wanted to place another order. She'd spend one day a week at Carmen's making the product, one day doing the deliveries, and one day doing the accounts. But the small amount in revenue that the business was generating at the time wasn't even enough to pay Carolyn's $80 a week rent bill. So Carolyn had to work a couple of other casual jobs just to make ends meet. And while Carolyn ground away for the first five years at Carmen's, really slowly, the business began to grow. But there was no secret to Carolyn's early success. It was just lots of really hard work and some super smart marketing. There's a, a great saying that my CFO at, at work at the moment says, which is sales solve everything. And, you know, really for us, we've never really had a supply problem. You know, we could always make product. You know, once we got to a point, we knew that we could go to a manufacturer and they could make it for us. So there was always always an ability to, to make product. It was about getting enough people to buy it because, you know, we're only making a small amount of money per bag and we just need to sell more bags to make enough so then you can move to your next premises, whatever. And I I often, I refer to the fact that my family um, are dairy farmers and for them, Hmm. it's it's supplies all they think about. They don't even have to think about sales because the dairy um, trucks, you know, the, the milk trucks will arrive and they'll take every bit of milk that they've ever made. So their whole obsession is around production and they never have to think about sales. Whereas for me, I've never really had to worry as much about production. I've always had to think about sales and, you know, they, they do solve everything if, if you get your pricing right and then, you know, that's what gives you the, the money to invest in the new products or the new packaging or the new premises. Um, so, that, that's been our, our story. So, you must be a pretty good salesperson. So, you're 18, 19 years old uh, and you're rocking up to probably dealing with people who are 40, 50, 60 years old, uh. seasoned small business people who, who are usually pretty, pretty switched on and you're rocking up trying to sell – a, a music concept, which again wasn't as popular then as it is now. How did you go rocking up uh, as a uni student? Yeah, so I, I st- still vividly, I, I just want you to envisage this. So at this stage, you know, I, had, I hadn't moved out of mum and dad's at the beginning. Of the, the rent I was talking about was that was why I think I moved out when I was about 20. And um, so say I was 19 and I got these 
appointment up at Cole's head office and, you know, I got there so early for the appointment because I was so nervous I'd be late and I'd got, you know, I had the bags looking as good as they could in my crisply. Mm. I had ironed this paper bag to take my samples in with and I was so nervous. But you know what I think is that people genuinely want small business people to survive. We love that connection of a real person. And I want you to think about when you have, you know, in your group of shops and you might have the the cafe where the nonna's at the back and she's making the, you know, the bolognese mm. and the lasagna and, and, the, and the granddaughters on the counter, um, you know, uh, taking your money. And you feel this connection because you understand them as people. You know, it's not just some faceless business. And I think over my whole journey, people have really wanted me to survive and to thrive and for the business to go well because they could see my passion. They could see the raw humanity of what, you know, how I was turning up so nervous and, and you know, and I have to say I am forever grateful for that buyer, a guy called Graham McShane. It's exactly what you said. You know, at the time I thought he was so much older than me, but he's probably just in his mid-40s and, you know, and he gave me a chance. Yeah. And so what I did learn, and I think this is very interesting, is that you have to remember that people aren't living in your bubble of what you're doing. So, you know, I often talk at our head office that, you know, we live in the Carmen's bubble and we're thinking about Carmen's all the time and looking at, um, you know, at, at the products. But when people see us, it's, it's they're hardly even giving us a second thought. They're just walking down a supermarket aisle, throwing some things in a trolley, probably on the phone to a friend. Like it's just not what's absorbing all of their energy in their thinking time. So you do have to remember, you know, and I know that when we go on and see a buyer, it's not that that buyer has to fall in love with the product themselves. They're more interested in, is this going to be a commercial success? Is this solving a need for my consumers? Is this, you know, is this something that consumers will buy at that price and that will, yeah, be a commercial success rather than them tasting something and thinking, oh, well, I've got to make sure that's on my shelf because that's the best tasting muesli. You know, sometimes you can have something that tastes amazing, but if the pricing's wrong, no one's going to come and buy it. I'm just going back. So your your, your business is still pretty pretty small. This is probably pre coals your, your early twenties, and I suspect you went full time around that point. Look, to be honest, Adam, if I could have given it away at some or, or got out of it, there was points where I was like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't walk away. It's not like you just resign from a job. I had bills to pay. I had, you know, it was like, I was like, well, how do you even wind this up? So I was working pretty hard. I was not making very much money. I was pretty down about, you know, the fact that like lots of my friends had got to go and have a gap year and go to Europe and backpack around. And here I was stuck. Like I always knew that I could never go anywhere more. You know, the really the max was probably two weeks. Um, because, you know, I could make up some extra stock before I went and I could get someone to help cover it, but you could never go away on a, you know, extended trip like that, like, you know, backpacking in Europe. You know, so the only option I had, the only <laughs> thing was to try and make it a success, is to try and turn it around. And and I worked super hard at that. And, you know, and I've always been quite um, practical. You can give me a pretty big to-do list and I keep churning through it and that's what I do in those days you know okay I've got to go and get another five clients or you know I've got to find a better packaging supplier and I just you know I didn't know anything about business I was just learning as I went along um 
but I was pretty tenacious and, and I did work pretty hard. How was the business growing? So you're 24, 25, you're probably starting to work almost full-time on it. Was it paying you a wage that was comparable to what you could have got in the corporate world? Oh, not even remotely. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, there, there's just things, you know, you th- we're talking back almost, you know, almost 30 years now. The big break was when Coles, when, you know, when, when I got a, into Coles, you know, and this um, you know, guy, Graham McShane, gave me 20 stores um, that I could deliver into direct. So, you know, I'd take my little day wheel hatchback behind the Lynn Fox semi-trailers <laughs> and they would deliver, you know, 20 pallets <laughs> and I'd just have one one cart in the boot. But that was, you know, I still remember the, <laughs> the, the check that I received was $1,097 and I have the, I have the butt framed on the wall at work because that, I'd never seen a check for over $1,000 <laughs> and that was really when things started to move that I realised that this is, um, you know, it was still super hard and it probably took another another five years from then. Like five years is when I could, when I was sort of not having to take other jobs so that I, I would just sort of was living off, off the money of um, Carmen's. But, you know, I can still remember, you know, things like when I got engaged to my husband at 26 and, you know, he borrowed the money from his dad to take me out for dinner that night. And, you know, we went to this really fancy restaurant and it was super exciting. And we were so, you know, there's, there's just nothing like the night you get engaged. And all I was sort of thinking was, how are we ever going to pay his dad back? So I, I know then still at 26 that, you know, to be able to borrow, say, $200 for a dinner out, that was kind of still a really big deal. Um, you know, and the evolution, it, it, it sort of turned as you started getting more more accounts and it was just getting bigger and, and you know, probably, I'm going to say it probably took 10 years to start actually being, you know, relatively successful. A long time, Adam, a long time when I talk about it now. Oh, my God, <laughs> it was painful. In the early days of Carmen's, Carolyn had become accustomed to not knowing how much she was going to earn every single week. But that uncertainty was too much for her business partner, Manya. Manya was older than Caroline and needed more security at the time. So after two years, Caroline bought out Manya's share of the business and became the 100% owner of Carmen's Fine Foods. Caroline borrowed $8,000 from her parents to buy out Manya's share. To date, this is the only external funding Caroline has ever used in the business. I actually think that that's one of the reasons that Carmen's has been, you know, uh, the success that it has, um, is because we have literally lived, you know, so I've owned it 100% the whole time since, you know, buying my partner out and we've we've lived off the profits that we've made. So, we've had to be really smart with money and we've had to not waste money. So, it was really, you know, we couldn't afford big TV campaigns or anything like that. So, we just had to do what we could when mm-hmm. we could, you know, whether it was at trade shows where we'd build the stands ourselves from Bunnings or, you know, whatever it was. Um, And Mm. then now, uh, I think sometimes people can squander money when it's come to them too easily so that they go out and they say, oh, well, Mm. you know, we want to raise $3 million and they get the $3 million and they go, oh, well, we're going to need this and this and this. And so that that money can sort of almost evaporate. Whereas if it's your own money that that you're literally taking out of Mm. your wallet, you really think whether you needed to do all of that and spend that um, the way that you did. So that's been my my philosophy. And then now it's also, it's because I love what I do. I don't want to have to answer to anyone else. I, I, 
you know, I always say if people yeah. come and they, they want to talk about, you know, buying into Carmen's or whatever, and I say, I'm happy to talk to you, but money is not what motivates me. So let's have this conversation and not talk about money. What what could you bring to the table? What could you do? Why would you make the business better? And that, uh, uh, you know, and so honestly, it's not what is my biggest driver. My, my biggest driver is the pride of the business being well run and it being, a, you know, a fantastic business. That That's what gets me up every day. The, the thrill at nothing is more exciting than me. This sounds so bad. Mm. Than being in a supermarket and seeing someone put a Carmen's product in their trolley or, or have them walk past me with a Carmen's trolley. Mm. And I chase them around the supermarket and I introduce myself. I embarrass <laughs> my kids, no end. That to me <laughs> is, the, is the real pride in what I do. And so, you know, I'm not... Um, that must happen quite often. Well, it does. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I've got to be in a, in a supermarket, you know, to, um, for it to happen. But, you know, I think... Here we are, like a smallish bunch. You know, we're 50 people now, a very um, dedicated people out in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And the fact that we can be selling products all around the world, that we, you know, we're, we're selling a product now, I think it's every one second we, we have another, another sale. It's, it's hmm. beyond what my wildest dreams of, of the success. Yeah, I could have never imagined this now, but that, you know, I'm still as, as, proud and I work I work as hard now as I ever have in you know certainly in for me it's in product development in um, packaging design in anything that a consumer would see that's you know I always any meeting I go into and I always say you know I have to have the voice of the consumer is this what they're going to want is this the right pack configuration is this the right pricing you know that's to me um, the biggest impact that I can have and, and you know what I love doing. Okay, how do you as a business decide what product you got to allocate your resources? What what products are you going to do next? How do you judge the, the sort of food trends, the, the low fat, the low carb, the low sugar, the high protein, all, all the stuff that that happens in the market? So we've kind of got quite sophisticated now with how we do our product innovation. We we start by looking at macro trends, so things like eating less sugar, plant based eating eating on the go, portability, um, sustainability in packaging. And then we look at what we're currently selling and say, is there anything that we need to change in our current offer, knowing that we're looking at these trends? And then is there new products that we should think about bringing out once we're looking at those trends? So, for example, um, there's a, a trend at the moment in sourdough and we were able to develop a uh, a lunch cracker that is a sourdough base. So when you think about lunch crackers, you know, there's, they're all kind of been in the category for 30 years and all of a sudden we've been able to take a trend from bread and bring it into a cracker and and, and bring some some innovation and something, you know, fresh thinking and that, that's selling super well. We only just launched that this week. So we don't always get it right and sometimes that we, we might go – perhaps we go too healthy or we go too indulgent because say about half of our mm. range is is really um, is super healthy and then we have a portion of it that's more indulgent and that often would mm. come under our limited edition work and then we try and we make, try and make things fun and we try and have um, 
bravery in our packaging and I'm always conscious of our stretch. So can we bring out something healthier, healthier? Can we bring out something more indulgent, more indulgent and to try and, you mm. know, uh, under the banner of Carmen's of the stretch that's appropriate for, for the business, what um, what trick have we missed? And then, you know, making sure that we're not just um, churning on ourselves, that we're not having people just moving from one product to another. Are we bringing in, in new consumers? Is there a consumer need out there that we haven't hit? So, for us, a long, for a long time, um, muesli bars was something that was predominantly owned by Uncle Toby's. And we were, mm. we did a lot of research and we came up with this concept called, called Aussie Oat Bars and we they're sort of dessert inspired. So, it's apple pie and custard yeah. or a choc brownie. Yeah. And that's been a, a wonderful success for us because we've kept them, you know, four and a half health stars and low in sugar. So, we know that parents are looking for that. But we know that parents want to put an indulgent treat that the kids are going to actually eat in a lunchbox. So, trying to make sure that, you, that you've had that element of fun or, like I said, the dessert-inspired flavours, um, that's been um, a super fun project to work on. Since Carolyn started running Carmen's in the early 1990s, it has grown to become one of Australia's most beloved brands and successful businesses. They've been selling overseas since 2012, and these days, they're stocked in more than 35 different countries and have more than $100 million in annual revenue. Carolyn was named Telstra Businesswoman of the Year in 2012, but she didn't always think she'd become such an inspirational leader. Like so many great founders, she's learned on the job, making mistakes, and hiring an incredible team. Everyone likes to be liked, and it took a long time to realise that this is not a popularity contest that this is not about me just trying to befriend everyone or be able to give them everything that they want. You know, it's about me setting the vision of what we're trying to achieve here and making sure that I've got the right people and in the right roles and then knowing if we've grown out of those people or that we're in a, um, you know, people can get very comfortable and, you know, and, and they can, a role can outgrow them. And so, through no fault of their own, you know, that they can be trying, but they can no longer bring what's required. And that's the hardest thing is to to move people on and to, to improve, as someone said to me the other day, you know, the gene pool of your business to be able to make sure that you've got the right people in the right roles. That is the biggest thing you can ever do as a leader is have that bravery of saying, okay, well, we might need to, you know, always looking at your structure, the people in it. Is there enough senior versus junior? I think a lot of businesses put too many senior people in and they have them doing stuff that someone, a third of their salary could be doing. So, making sure that you're paying the right money Mm. so that you've got good balance and, you know, a lot of my time is sort of thinking about that. And then you try a structure and if it's not working, what else could you do? And, you know, for us, we... We're a very um, strategic business. We spend a lot of time on our plans for the year, explaining them, you know, to everyone. We have this, you know, one team, one plan, and that everyone in the business has initiatives Mm. that ladder up to the overall strategy um, of what we're trying to achieve. And so, to be really clear, so for us, we would love to have, you know, we have these big, hairy, audacious goals, and one of them is to have 100% engaged work workforce. So, I think at the moment we're sitting at 96%, which is pretty um, incredible. So, just to explain um, to people perhaps listening that, you know, for most workplaces, you know, if you have 50% engagement, it means that for every second person sitting in the office, 
every second person is, is just is going through the motions. They're doing what they need to do, but they're not really engaged. They're not giving discretionary effort. They're not going above and beyond. They're not just passionate about the outcome. They're, they're sort of there for the paycheck and, you know, potentially looking to say, well, what would my next move be and, 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 and not really engage with the organisation. And what we're all desperate for is people who are really engaged and who really want to do the absolute best and who will go above and beyond and give that discretionary effort. And that to me is something that, you know, how do you give people a voice of all different levels in the business so that you can hear what are their recommendations, what should you change, what's important to them. You know, often people just want to be heard. And most people who who leave a company, they don't necessarily leave for much more money. I think the statistics are they leave for 3% more salary. They leave generally because they don't like their manager. And we put a lot of effort into building up our people and, and giving them the tools in their toolbox to be the best manager and to be having, you know, frank and open conversations. And I think that's really, really important. You've built this incredible culture, uh, which obviously stems from you, but has, has infused the entire business. How did you how did you actually do that? Is it simply hiring the right people? Is it how you personally operate day to day? Yeah. So, in fact, I'll, I'll take you back a few years because I think that this shows what I got it wrong. So, you know, as I said, I was sort of, you know, I remember in the early days, I thought, well, all right, once a year we'll do a pay rise and, and we'll do a 5% pay rise. And so, what would happen is that everyone was used to the fact that it was 5%. So, once someone had been there for five years, all of a sudden they're getting 25% more, but really, you know, I'd actually yeah. were, were paying people more than what the market rate was. And so then they were like, well, I can't actually leave because, you know, if I go out to the market, I'm going to mm. get $15,000 less. So, yeah. um, and they were, we, we just had some bad eggs in the business. And I just, I knew, I read a book called Who Said Elephants Can't Dance? And it was this turnaround of IBM, one of the most fantastic business books I've ever read. Yeah. And I thought, I have got to get this culture under control because I've just tried to befriend everyone too much. I'm giving everyone, you know, people <laughs> overpaid and, I, and I've got sort of, we've got a cancer coming in here of the expectations I was buying, you know, people were cold and I was going out and having to get it, buying them heated blankets so they could put them over their knees when they were, I mean, just ridiculous <laughs> stuff. And so I decided <laughs> that I would announce, and it was before Christmas, that um that I was offering voluntary redundancy to anyone in the business. So if they were having any whinges at the water cooler and were, you know, because that's what people were doing, they were getting a bit stroppy, you know, that kind of corridor conversations. So I was like, this is your chance. You've got, you've got to take control of your own destiny. And luckily through that, I was able to move on. Uh, you know, at the time we probably only had um, – 25 people, but probably four or five people that really were, were very bad for our culture. So, coming out of that, we set sort of new expectations, which is if you at any point you're whinging about something, you need to be coming and whinging to me or to my head of HR because we can't do anything about it if you're having corridor conversations. Come and tell us what are the issues. And sometimes they can be all sorts of things. Um, but one of the biggest things I think companies don't do is they don't act on underperformers. So, if you go in and you think, God, I'm just busting myself, but the person next to me can arrive late, can leave early, isn't working that hard when they're here, you know, that really gets people upset. And they think, why would I put in my extra effort when the company doesn't do anything about that underperformer? And so, I do think um, 
know, the, the attitude you walk past is the attitude you accept. And so to make sure that you don't walk past and just turn a blind eye to underperformers and inappropriate, you know, behaviour. And so we, we've really made a, a huge, you know, and this has been a probably now I'm going to say seven-year turnaround um, to get our culture into a really um, fantastic place. And it has also been helped by the fact that um, about uh, two years ago, so probably now four years ago now, but I, I spent a long time looking to buy a, a head office and I found an old chocolate factory um, in a place called Huntingdale, which is near Chadston, for those that know the big shopping centre. And this is a rambling building, um, five and a half thousand square metres, where I've, I've built sort of the head office of my dreams. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that are great about it. So my, my um, our reception we've opened up is actually a Carmen's shop. So consumers can come in, they can buy anything, they can try anything, and we have factory, you know, all the factory seconds, and um, we have lots of um, lots yeah. of great things that happen there. We we have a cafe as well, and I, I hack some technology called Skip, and, and they love that I, I did this. So so I'm, I'm not yeah. speaking out of school. So that anyone that works for Carmen's wherever they are in the building can just grab their phone and say, can I have a latte delivered to my desk or can we please have you know six peppermint teas delivered to the to the boardroom and um and so i, I realized that coffee was you know particularly in melbourne was such a big part of a workplace mm. and the idea that you could um you know i could i can run a cafe which basically pays for my barista's salary and that gives basically everyone in the in the building you know that covers mm. the cost of of them having the 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 um the coffees and yeah. things delivered to them. We have um, we have a, a chef on site who um, we offer discount lunches. So we have five dollar lunches, which are like beautiful, you know, salmon and roasted veggies, or um, you know, gorgeous healthy food, um, so that people don't have to sort of think about lunch. And then she also has a big fridge and freezer where people can go down if they want to buy burritos to take home for dinner or um, take chicken salads. And, and so we have a we have a fridge and freezer where people can think at the end of the day. So I'm always conscious of what are the pain points in people's lives. In particular, I've got a lot of working parents and how can I make that smoother and easier? Um, we have a gym at work. We have a, a yoga room. We have um, uh, yoga teachers that come in um, and personal trainers. Um, so we have a lot of people that use that. There might be lunchtime classes before work. Um, we run meditation classes. We have a fantastic um, a big massage chair in a room. And then we have a napping pod, which is from NASA. So um, if people want to go and have a 20-minute <laughs> power nap, they can. Um what else do we have? Oh, you know, it's it's just got a, um, a you know, it is a, a fantastic head office. And I, I went to Google in New York and, and looked at a lot of the things that they were doing and tried to, to copy um, and get inspiration around how do you make it that people can arrive at work, you know, at quarter to nine in the morning and can work really hard and can leave at 5.30 at night and can smash their work out. And, and the way you could do that is you tr try and take away some of those distractions from them and just smooth out the pain points in their day. So that just gives them the ability of having, you know, fantastic technology and uh, just ability to get through their work. So I'm always kind of trying to fight the bureaucracy that can creep into to, um, you know, the business as it grows. But, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the head office and, um, you know, it's a, it's a great place to work. I think I want to multiply for a job. <laughs> it uh, sounds amazing. Uh, do people almost start taking things for granted when they have everything on site? Honestly, I don't think that people 
take it for granted. They are so appreciative because most people have worked in places where mm. all of these pain points have happened for them. And to come in and go, I can get here really easily, whether I drive or whether we've got a big car park, whether we're, whether I drive or I come on the train, I can come in and, um, you know, being able to be treated with respect. And I guess that stems back to me being on the checkout at Coles. I know what it's like to not be treated mm. with respect. And I'm not saying, you know, Coles is a fantastic organisation. I'm just saying that when when people walk through those registers, you know, please, if anyone's listening, just say hi and just be nice to the person on the other side because, yeah. it's, you know, we're, we're all, we're wanting to just to feel good as human beings, I think. And, and that's what, you know, a lot of the things that I've, I've done, you know, sort of a, it is around people's wellness and, and, to be able to incorporate those things, you know, it becomes then harder for people to leave because they say, well, you know, I, you know, that I, they appreciate all of that gets wrapped into um, their working experience. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't uh, change it. And I, I would encourage anyone that's listening that has an ability to do what they can in whatever financial situation that they might be in. You know, for a long time, we just used to do the quiz out of the Herald Sun at lunchtime as a group every day. Mm. You know, another thing that we do do is we say that lunch is at, um, is at 12.30 and so it's literally a bell rings and everyone knows that they stop. Now, whether you go and have one of our Carmen's lunches, whether you've bought your own, but, you know, that is when we all sit and we actually leave our desks and we chat to each other. Um, and I think that's really important. I think eating at your desk is, um, well, that's something that's banned at Carmen's. Um, it's, it's super important yeah. to, to give yourself a little bit of a, of a brain break and, and to actually chat with your colleagues as human beings. And, and the other thing that we do, which we do at 9.30 every day, and um, I think we'll always continue to do it on, um, we use Teams, is we do something called Huddle. So we go on there, the lady that runs our shop, she's got a wonderful personality, Janine, and she welcomes everyone. She says if there's any staff movements that we might need to know, and then people put their hand up if there's anything they want to say. So they might say, we've just run the first production of this product, or they might say that we've, we're having an audit of this, or that we've got, you know, an anniversary of someone. So we always, um, we always celebrate people starting and we celebrate their anniversaries much more so than we, than we sort of celebrate when people leave. I, I think workplaces that have these big parties and gold watches when someone's leaving, the time to celebrate them was while they were with you, um, not when they're going. So it feels like one of your the, the keys to your success as a, as a entrepreneur, business person, and you, you've become very wealthy and you're a TV star and, <laughs> and very recognised. You've somehow managed to remain so normal and so grounded. Mm. Uh, is there? How have you done it? How, how have you? It doesn't sound like you're any different to to when you were a 23 year old uh, with a tiny business mm. and a day were dropping off boxes at, at Coles. Um, when so many people sort of can't help but be affected by the by the the change in lifestyle, how, how have you sort of maintained that that level headedness? You know, I think it's uh, being able to not worry about money is the greatest privilege you can ever have in your life. So for a long time, I would wake at three in the morning thinking, "Who am I paying? What am I going to do?" and once you know that your mortgage is going to be paid and that that you can do whatever that you would want to do in your, you know, whether it's, and it's not that I'm saying you, you're going to want a caviar every night, but if you wanted to say, I, I can go out for dinner with my friends on the weekend, I don't have to think, I don't have to make that choice whether I can afford to go and have that dinner. 
that mm. sense of relief, that freedom is fantastic. But beyond any of that, that's all I ever think is that I can afford to do what I want when I want, but it doesn't mean that I would spend recklessly because that's just not who I am as a person. And I think that anyone mm. that believes their own PR, it's a very dangerous, slippery slope. And, you know, when I meet people and we, we would all meet people who all of a sudden think that they're really extra special now because they might have had some success in who they've married, in their career, in a trust fund or an inheritance that's come to them. But if if you don't have people that ground you, that are around you, that are keeping you normal, you know, I think for me, I'm always fascinated by how self-development, how do I make myself better? What what do I need to learn? How You only have this one chance to live. Are you, are you making the most of it in you know, in the life, in, in the day, you know, I often look at, you know, I write out my perfect day. Well, what would that look like? And, you know, mm. you might be pushing yourself to say, all right, you know, I really do want to take up meditation. How am I going to fit that in? When's the best time? You know, those type of things I'm often I'm often thinking about and, um, and yeah, just trying to evolve as a person. And, and I think that keeps you pretty grounded. Why you've built Carmen's over 25 years, I think, you've, you've had along the way, I think, four beautiful children who aren't yes. quite fully grown up yet. They're still at home. Uh, uh, yes. Well and truly at home. We've got two kids and, and we struggle. Uh, you've got four uh, and you've, you've built this incredible business. How, have you, how did you manage to do both? Uh, you know, to be honest, there was a point with my husband that we both couldn't keep going. My husband's an arborist, so he's a, a tree specialist. Mm. And yeah. we sort of just realised that we both couldn't keep working at the, at the rate we were um, that you know that this was going to be become too difficult, and that was the point where we had two kids. And he said, you know, I'm more than happy. You know, I'd love to step back and and to stay at home. And so he he's um, led that for us, which has been fantastic. So I do think it's important that people um, know that challenge. Not that, that I uh, that I don't think you know you can do the juggle. It would, it's just hard with four kids. Um, so yeah, my yeah. guys now. Are, I've got a 17 year old um, boy, Will, and uh, um, a 15 year old girl. Girl, a 13 year old boy and 11 year old my little daughter um, turned 11 yesterday so um, it is busy but it's awesome and you know and I do think that what happens inside your four walls when no one's watching is the most important part of that that's what success in life is not about what your career you know mm. it's about the fun and the happiness that you have you know I think um, with your family and with your friends um, and to me, you know, I, I feel very blessed that, um, you know, we have a, a, a great family uh, unit and people warned me how hard it was going to be once they all became teenagers, but four teenagers at once is going to be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, outside the business, you've been a, a great advocate for, for refugees. Uh, I've mm. been an ambassador of the Asylum Seeker, Seekers Resource Centre. You've been on the board of the Human Rights Commission, on the Human Rights Law Centre mm. board. Uh, where did this passion for refugees come from? Was it was it when you were younger? Yeah, I have to say though, my passion is for the fact that if you think about tonight, that all these people around the world are going to sleep under the same moon and the same stars, and some of us just got really lucky. Some of us got lots of education and lots of power and lots of water lots of opportunity and you know and I'm one of those people but there's plenty of people around the world that didn't get that and all you would hope is if the yeah. the tables were turned that they would care and they'd think well hang on you got everything could you share and could you remember me 
because I haven't had that same situation. So I am, you know, that that is my passion of people that, you know, whether it's refugees, whether it's um, particularly um, girls in education in third world countries, um, I'm involved in uh, a boarding school in um, Ethiopia where we have 36 girls who so were given a safe place that they can keep their education going. So that across everything that I've kind of been involved in, it's really just to be conscious that we are the lucky ones and let's just not forget the opportunities that we've been given. And, you know, it's not – honestly, I really do not do that much, but that that's um, – that's that's my belief and and um, and you know the, my support and, and where we often also give our money. It's amazing. You've you've built this this brilliant business. It's one of the great the great Australian brands. It's <laughs> certainly one that, that I look for. You're a you're well you're a famous TV star now. Uh, you're a, a great <laughs> philanthropist. Where, where does it? What's the end game for for Carolyn Cresswell? Where will you? one day sell the business where you just focus on not-for-profit? What, what, where, where do you think in 20 years' time you end up? Yeah, look, I imagine, um, in, yeah, in, in maybe 20 years, I, I don't think that it's fair that my children would come in to the business, particularly there's four of them, and I think that that is too great a privilege. I don't – I look at other situations where um, – there's a privilege of thinking that you could just come in and run this. And so, um, so that only then leaves some form of, of sale. Um, mm. But I still think, you know, I'm only 47. I still think yeah. I've got lots of years in me yeah. and I'm, I'm hopefully still still good at the bits that I do. So, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, I, I honestly, I love waking up. I loved going to work on a Monday morning. I work really hard, but I'm really proud of the, of the work that I do. And, you know, and I'd love to think that if – we are able to use some of the success in Carmen's of helping out people, whether in, in Australia or around the world, that, that haven't had the success. That makes me feel very proud. So that would be something of, of building up our philanthropy and building up our giving. That, um, that's something that I'm looking forward to, um, to developing more and more. And do you have a, a favourite Carmen's product? Oh, it's always the one that we've just launched. So I had that sour, my sourdough lunch crackers for lunch today and they were fantastic. Um, and I am very partial. We have this incredible um, dark chalk espresso nut bar, which we get coffee bean. I love coffee. And we grind them up and you get this coffee hit. And um, that, that is also one of one of my favourite um, of our bar products. Amazing. Thanks, Anna. You've been absolute inspiration to, to so many. And it's uh, it's been a, a real privilege to, to chat. My, my absolute pleasure and I and I hope there's a couple of nuggets for people who hopefully might be thinking that they might give something a crack and my biggest advice is, you know, don't die wondering. Give it a go. And that was Carolyn Creswell, founder of Carmen's Fine Foods. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Gray. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.